Syria has been at war for seven long years. More than a half million people have been killed. More than 11 million, close to half Syria's pre-war population, have been displaced, either internally or as refugees in other countries. But Syrians are not the only ones involved in this fight. The Islamic Republic of Iran, Lebanese Hezbollah, the Iranian regime's foreign legion, and Russia have helped keep dictator Bashar al-Assad in power. Israel, Turkey, and the U.S. also have been playing significant roles. Today, I'm joined by FTD's senior counselor, John Hanna, and director of research, David Adesnik, to discuss this long and bloody conflict, where it is heading, and what U.S. policy is, and perhaps what it should be. I'm your host, Cliff May, and this is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. We have a lot to discuss, but let's begin at the beginning. The war now underway in Syria began back in 2011. John, what sparked it? Well, as if you'll recall, it's seven years ago now, uh, that was the time of the so-called Arab Spring, uh, beginning really in Tunisia and Egypt. They were popular uprisings um, against authoritarian regimes uh, that quickly spread to several other parts of the Middle East. And by... Uh, March of 2011, after the Egyptian uh, leader Hosni Mubarak had been deposed and after a president of Tunisia had been deposed, uh, the revolution, the Arab revolution, came to Syria. And what began again, uh, as in several of these countries, as a more or less popular uprising uh, by very disgruntled populations suffering from great economic deprivation and uh, lack of political rights uh, rose up initially peacefully against the Assad regime, uh, but as in other places, the revolution quickly uh, went quite dark in a number of ways, both in terms of uh, the groups that took leadership over those uprisings, uh, which quickly took on a very Islamist a bent, but then also also became quite quite quickly uh, uh, violent as well. In Egypt, Tunisia, the dictatorships were in fact overthrown. Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, he was not about to be. He responded to the protests, initially peaceful protests, rather brutally, um, and that spilled into a civil war. That at this point you have a half million people dead, and again, as uh, about half the population pre-war 20 of 22 million is now either displaced internally or they've fled to Jordan, Turkey, and, and, and other countries. I guess, though, the bottom line at this point, Assad is winning his war, isn't he? 
I think Assad is winning, but it would be a mistake to describe the war as close to its end. Um, Assad has mainly consolidated control of the north-south axis in western Syria, where most of the country's uh, population centers are, including its largest cities. But the areas that are beyond his control are still fairly substantial. So it's around 30% of the country in terms of square mileage that uh, Syrian Kurds and coalition forces, meaning U.S. and other counter-ISIS forces, uh, occupy northeast of the Euphrates. Um, there's areas controlled by the Turkish military along with uh, associated uh, rebel movements in Syria. And now we're seeing extensive fighting in the south, which was another area beyond Assad's control. So even if it doesn't look like there's uh, an effective movement underway to overthrow Assad, especially given his support from Russia and Iran, um, to, to complete his reconquest, uh, there's still a lot of bloody fighting likely ahead. Um, I agree with that, but two things I want to make clear. One is that Assad essentially has captured everything from from Aleppo in the north to Damascus in the south, and that's what the French used to call Siri utile. I guess if you say that it's a useful Syria, it's not desert. It's uh, it's the cities. It's where things are made. It's the it's the most important part of the country, and he seems to have that back. The other thing that I think listeners have to understand, and this is tricky, Syria has been a, a Sunni majority country. Bashar al-Assad is not a Sunni. He is an Alawite. Now, what is an Alawite? The Alawites are said to be, if you hear on the news, an offshoot of the Shia. I would argue that if the Alawites were in Iran, they'd be considered heretics because they've gone so far away from Shiism. But across a couple of foreign borders, they'll do as a proxy and as a client of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So now what you have are the Alawites and their Shia allies and other allies fighting a war against the Sunnis. And as I've heard it, and tell me if you think the, the evidence is, is substantial, Assad is attempting to change, transform the demographics of the entire country. It may not be a Sunni country 20 years from now. Is that correct? Um, it's a tough one to gauge. I think there are definitely movements in that direction. Given just how large the Sunni majority was, reshaping it would really require some dramatic effort. But some of the main mechanisms that Assad is employing are as follows. So obviously, a, a, those who have fled the country disproportionately are Sunni, you know, vastly disproportionately. And uh, Assad makes it more difficult for them to come back or reclaim property that, he, you know, he has the ability to say, if you don't, uh, you know, file certain documentation within a certain amount of time and the state can have it. And then uh, large redevelopments are planned for, for areas where all the property is confiscated. Um, and then there's also resettlement. There's talk of then bringing uh, other minority groups, whether it's, you know, Christian, Druze, uh, the small actual Shiite uh, minority in Syria or Alawites into some of these areas. So in a way, there is a kind of demographic reengineering going on. Um, I think it wouldn't be too hard to describe it as uh, ethnic cleansing of a sort. Mm -hmm. And John, what, right now, a lot of the fighting is taking place in the in the in the, in the southern part of the country, right? Um, since June, the government's been attacking those rebel enclaves that still exist, particularly in the, in the southwest of Syria, particularly in the province of Dera. What's the situation there as far as you can tell? Well, it's, it's very bad. I mean, it's, a, it's another one of these very, very bloody offensives by the Assad regime, backed by Iran, backed by Russian air cover, devastating 
entire areas, lots of collateral damage, civilians fleeing, I think, up to a third of the population in the South, which was originally about 750,000 people, has now fled from their homes, uh, either displaced to uh, the Jordanian border or, uh, even more importantly, the Israeli border, which are both creating quite a flashpoint because neither Israel nor Jordan, for a good reason, need to take in these refugees. I think they're trying to help them as best they can, but this is rapidly emerging as a a, um, genuine humanitarian disaster. It's also important to remember that uh, this uh, zone in the southwest along the Israeli and Jordanian borders was a subject of one of these so-called ceasefire or de-escalation zones that the Russians helped negotiate. There were four of those originally in Syria, one of them here in the south. The importance of the south was that it was negotiated not only between Russia and Jordan, the United States and President Trump himself was a party to this ceasefire de-escalation zone in the South that the Russians and Assad and with uh, almost certainly help from the Iranians and their proxies are now violating en masse with very little U.S. response. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. role. So first, the U.S. is not responding to violations of an agreement entered into with the Russians. That's uh, you, would, you might have expected that they would. Beyond that, is there a difference between Trump's policy in Syria and Obama's policy in Syria? Listen, I think you've got to give the tr- uh, Trump team credit for how quickly they picked up Obama's war against ISIS and finished the job, a war that had been going on since uh, the middle of 2014. Uh, Within less than a year, Trump and uh, the U.S. military had that finished. And there clearly was a a change in the rules of engagement under President Trump. I think he deserves significant credit for that. Unleashed the military, essentially. Unleashed. He said, you do what you need to do um, to get this over, to destroy ISIS. Not Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think perhaps most visibly there was a difference on the question of the use of chemical weapons, clearly. Obama had a massive use of chemical weapons in 2013. He had made clear before that, set a red line saying if there were chemical weapons used, the United States would respond militarily. He didn't. Uh, Trump has changed that on two occasions in which there have been uh, evidence of large-scale use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime. Uh, Trump has, in fact, uh, responded militarily. Some people may say it wasn't robust enough a strike, uh, but Trump has responded. He's done what he said he would do, which is uh, not allow the u- a massive use of chemical weapons to go un- unanswered. I think that's an important an important difference. David, fairly recently, fairly, um, President Trump has changed his national security team. So now he has Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. He has John Bolton as National Security Advisor. They're obviously talking to him about what should be U.S. policy in Syria and how the policy in Syria um, will impact the rest of the region. Policy towards Iran, policy towards Israel, policy towards Jordan, policy towards Iraq. All all the parts are interconnected. Uh, I have no question in my mind that Pompeo and Bolton see that. Do we have a coherent policy of the Trump administration now for Syria? Uh, and if so, does it 
does it work? Does it dovetail with the other policies in the region, particularly, I suppose, the most important one, which is to put extraordinary pressure uh, on the regime in Tehran? Um, I think we have a ways to go toward coherence. And one of the biggest questions at, at the heart of the dilemma is as follows, is, is it in the vital interest of the United States to contest or neutralize Iranian influence in Syria? Um, to step back for the Obama administration, it was not. Um, in their view, of course, achieving uh, a certain detente or reconciliation with Iran was part of their vision for the region. So they actively wanted to avoid uh, conflict in Syria. Now, Trump, of course, has pulled out of the nuclear deal with Iran, which was the, the sort of the centerpiece, the cornerstone of that engagement of the previous administration. And we've seen it on a number of occasions, very senior officials making the point that we are contesting their influence, that uh, above all, I would point to Secretary of State Pompeo's speech recently, where he laid out a, a fairly aggressive series of demands. None of them by itself was unreasonable, yet together they amounted to telling Iran they had to fundamentally change their approach to destabilizing the region. And of course, that means in Syria as well. Uh, yet there are indications that that's not what we want to do, that when President Trump says we want to pull our troops out as quickly as possible, they occupy key positions in real estate that would be of tremendous value to Iran and to the Syrian regime, both in the Northeast, where oil and other key resources are, as well as a location called Tanf, which is sort of near the intersection of the Jordanian, Syrian, and Iraqi borders. So, And it's a it's right astride the highway that is the shortest route from Damascus to Baghdad. And of course, uh, Iran has indicated that it would like to have a, a contiguous line of control on the ground, a so-called land bridge, enabling it to get all the way to the Mediterranean. And th this is the big question, which is, are we going to contest that? And you have some people indicating yes, and other times, uh, especially from the president, indications are that there's a tremendous reluctance to do this. So TAMF, if I'm understanding correctly, John, is sort of a key piece in this puzzle. Uh, if you want to prevent Iran from achieving its really imperial ambitions, uh, that's how I would see it. Uh, people talk about a land bridge, but you're also talking about Iranian essential control in Iraq, control in Syria. Uh, including forces there, their own, and something like 80,000 militia forces, Shia, but from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, foreign mercenaries, uh, control n unquestionably, I would say, in Lebanon through Hezbollah, its proxy, which now for all intents and purposes governs that country, control to some extent in Gaza uh, through Hamas, which it funds and instructs uh, also, of course, you've got Houthi rebels fighting in Yemen. So you've got, you, you have this imperialist or hegemonic design by the regime in Iran. Hard to question that. And this little town of Tomf, which nobody's heard of, seems to be an important position because if Americans leave, uh, that helps Iran a lot towards achieving its ambitions, doesn't it? If America stays, well, let's talk about what that means too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, if America leaves simply in a vacuum, picks up and goes without having made any prior arrangements with the other powers in the region to block the Iranians and stop the Iranians, uh, then you've handed Iran a major, major win. Tomf is right at the crossroads of the most direct route that runs from Baghdad to Damascus. Um, it would be an open highway then for uh, Iranian forces, the Iranian land bridge. Uh, to Hezbollah, the Mediterranean, and to Israel's northern border, uh, which is why I think the Israelis would be extremely concerned 
if in fact uh, the president decided that we simply had run out of breath and had to get our forces out of, uh, of Syria as quickly as possible. I have to believe that John Bolton is saying uh, to the president, as is Mike Pompeo, we need to keep a residual force uh, in Tanf. We have to stay in Syria, and it has to be kinetic. We can't do what we want to do through soft power and through just diplomacy. We have to show that our forces are there and they're not to be uh, trifled with. I have to say, that I think that's the case. Is, I'm asking you to read the tea leaves a little bit. James Mattis, Secretary of Defense, is he giving the same advice? I think so. I think the indications are that uh, the Pentagon uh, believes, A, they need to be in top because the fight against Islamic State is still not completely finished. If anything, I think people who watch uh, the Islamic State quote, closely, both in Iraq and Syria, believe that there's some reason that they are, in fact, uh, somewhat resurgent. So and that holds some territory in Syria, according to reports. Bill holds I've seen. territory in Syria, and I've have been increasingly active on uh, on a number of fronts in in Iraq. Uh, so Tom still provides. We continue to support a group out of out of Tomf, a rebel group that is focused on on fighting Islamic State. Uh, so it's very important from that sense. And I think it's uh, that, that Mattis uh, has made statements in the past that he knows a continued U.S. presence uh, is uh, worthwhile and necessary until we've set some kind of uh, conditions for some kind of political settlement that will, in fact, safeguard U.S. interests and at least prevent another ISIS from emerging inside of Syria, which would require the U.S. to, to come back and fight for that same ground again. I mean, within what you might call Trump's base, among his supporters, there are those who are saying, you promised non-interference in all these foreign conflicts that we have very little interest in. Um, you should be getting out. There are others who say, if you get out of Syria at this point, it'll be the same mistake that Obama made when he pulled out all forces, not even leaving behind a residual force in Iraq after we had fought for years in Iraq and essentially left a vacuum that the Iranian mullahs could fill. So just within the, those who are supporting Trump, as I understand it, there is this argument taking place. Is that what you're hearing, David? I mean, I think that's very much the case, that in some ways the way it was with Obama was there was just this need to demonstrate commitment to a non-interventionist lawsuit by pulling out of somewhere. So Obama had to go ahead. And even though we were basically at the point where the U.S. was taking almost no casualties anymore, and of course the cost of the intervention in Iraq was declining, Obama still sort of disengaged both militarily and diplomatically, inviting the chaos that ultimately resulted in the Islamic State. And I think Trump is in a similar position. Of course, on Afghanistan, his instinct was to pull out. And he clearly, which he said, and then he said, but he went against it on the uh, on the advice of uh, Jim Mattis and others. And I think it leaves him with a certain sense of frustration that he still needs to demonstrate that he can get out of these commitments. And Syria, therefore, becomes uh, sort of a demonstration piece. And I think that's why he really, you know, contradicted his top advisors a few months ago, that if it's important to recall that when Trump said he wanted to pull out, it was an unexpected announcement uh, shortly after other senior officials in the administration said, actually, we are there to some extent to play a role in blocking Iranian influence. So it really underscored the depth of the disagreement. So the, the U.S. mission right now in Syria is to continue to destroy 
the Islamic State is to be a barrier to the spread of Iranian influence, um, though not necessarily to continue to support rebels who are fighting Bashar al-Assad. Am I correct? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct that uh, we've been out of the game of backing rebels to take down the Assad regime for a long time. If anything, I think, Dave, I agree with everything that David has said. Uh, I think there's every indication that the president's instinct, despite the best advice of his advisors, is that he wants to get out of this conflict. That's what he thinks the American people expect, at least the people that voted for him expect. And I think that's what he strongly wants to do. He keeps returning to this, even though he understands the danger of, of the Iranian land bridge uh, and the Iranian sweep to the Mediterranean and the, the real possibility of a conflict and war with Israel. But I think he's hoping that um, through two mechanisms, one by empowering the Israelis and perhaps some coalition of Arabs led by the Saudis, that, that they'll be able to step up uh, with, Amer with full American backing, just not American <coughs> troops, uh, to take on the Iranians and to blunt the Iranian advance into, uh, into Syria on their own. And as well, I think, and we're heading into a possible summit between President uh, Trump and uh, President Putin of Russia that, uh, frankly, like the Obama administration before them, they're uh, uh, putting an awful lot of uh, weight on the possibility that President Putin might have uh, be brought around to a common interest of helping block uh, the Iranian entrenchment in Syria as well. Um, that's a big gamble, and, and I do, I'm not sure the history suggests that's possible. Let, let's imagine this meeting that's coming up between between President Putin and, and, and President Trump. Both are, both are dealmakers. Both are, can be pretty clear on what they want and what they consider to be a win and a loss. Uh, neither one is the kind of diplomat who says, as long as we get some agreement, I can go home and say I've, I've been successful. Um, that's just not the kind of personalities we see. So what does Trump want out of this meeting? What does Putin want out of this meeting? And is there enough common ground that they could both get what they want? and actually come out as winners? I'm not sure there is enough common ground. Um, I think the ideal outcome from the White House perspective would be uh, a really ironclad commitment from Putin to help usher Iran out of Syria. Um, the active premise is that there's enough of a difference of interest between Iran and Russia, to, uh, both of Syria's main backers, that we can exploit that difference. That for Iran, Syria is a pivotal part of its quote-unquote axis of resistance, that it needs it to help uh, supply Hezbollah in Lebanon, part of uh, the string of capitals it wants to control straight to the Mediterranean, and ultimately as a front and a forward base for launching its ultimate war on Israel. Russia doesn't have that in mind. Russia isn't looking to destroy Israel. Um, it's more content to have its bases in Syria. And it's really found itself on the horns of a dilemma when Israel has started launching airstrikes. And of course, the US has launched two rounds of strikes in April of 2017 and of 2018. Israel has been launching consistent strikes, hitting uh, a mix of Iranian, Hezbollah, Syrian targets, possibly as many as 100 times. And what Putin has done is nothing. He uh, doesn't seem to know what to do. On the one hand, he's not going to sort of help defend the Iranians, it seems. He doesn't want to get involved with Israel. Um, but 
He also doesn't want to do anything to uh, seems usher out the Iranian threat so that Israel no longer feels the need to attack. So he, he's caught between these two forces, and he'd rather not have to make a choice. Just to be clear, is it not possible that he has made a choice to an extent? Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel has been talking with Putin a lot. There's at least the possibility that he said, look, I know what your interests are. I'm not going to interfere with them. You've got your bases there. You know what my interests are, and you've got to understand Israel's not going to let Iran uh, establish bases on its border and bring in new weapons that Hezbollah can use. We won't do that no matter what that takes. Don't ask us to. Maybe Putin says, that's none of my business. You do what you have to do. I'm not here to stop you from that. Just know where my people are. Stay away from them. Is that not a possibility that, in other words, that there is a tacit agreement between Israel and Russia right now on the, on the basic and most vital interests? Um, there's a lot of risk involved in such an agreement if it's there because if the conflict between Israel and Iran escalates in Syria, it could threaten the Assad regime. Israel has said that if Iran pushes too far, it won't hesitate to take out Assad if that's what it needs to do to keep Israelis safe. And in that instance, uh, Putin would be in a position where it would have he would have to decide either I'm going to stop the Israelis or try to stop the Israelis or I'm going to let them go and do something that would potentially cause a major break between Russia and Iran. So for the moment that's sustainable, the question is how sustainable it is in the long term. The Israelis have, uh, John, they have benefited, I they think they believe, from Trump policies on all sorts of ways. Um, but I think you're right to suggest that Trump would like Israel to bear a lot of the the brunt of the fight there rather than have American troops do that. Uh, Israelis have always said, we don't want Americans fighting for us. We just want Americans to make it possible that we can defend ourselves. Is that what's going on now, or is it uh, more tense than I'm describing? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think there have been moments of real tension. Uh, this is one place, uh, that is Syria, where I think the Israelis um, have had some deep concerns about what the Trump administration's strategy really is, how committed they actually are to um, maintaining a position of U.S. dominance in the Middle East writ large and in particular the question of Iran. Um, how can, I think they ask, how can you have a policy that is meant to push back against the Iranians on all axes um, and yet have no real game in Syria, be willing to leave Syria entirely, um, apparently unconditionally, at least that's the way Trump has, has talked in the past. So I think there have been some, some real moments of concern. I think the Israelis would very much welcome greater coordination with the Trump administration in Syria. They, I think, would very much want the United States to maintain its military leverage inside of Syria, both in the east with the Kurds along the Iraqi border, but also at Tomf, um with the Syrian rebels there. Uh, and I think the Israelis believe at the end of the day, if you're going to have any kind of political settlement that really helps marginalize the Iranians, the Russians will be critical to that, but the Americans have got to play as well. And I think the Israelis fear that the Americans won't be able to play to exercise that kind of influence unless they continue to have real skin in the game. So I agree. And I think Right. There's no question the Israelis are willing to fight and bleed to defend their own country. They're not looking for the U.S. guarantee. It'll be their pilots 
their jets. They're willing to lose them if necessary over Syria to take out weapons that are threatening them. But what's important to recognize is certain things that Israel can never do. And that is, for example, garrison positions in northeast Syria that, yes, of course, Israel could provide X hundred troops to, say, control the position at Tanf. But just because of the history of animosity between Israeli and Arab, between Jew and Muslim, it's impossible for Israel to do what America does, which is actually maintain substantial forces and have partnerships with Arab Muslim partners, whether at the key position at Tanf we were discussing before, whether the substantial position in northeast Syria. So Israel looks those and it needs the U.S. to just really maintain the status quo that has been set up because there's no way it can step in. It can do its part. I'm reminded when Russia first got involved in Syria, President Obama warned Putin, you're stepping into a quagmire, I think was the word he used. You don't understand, as apparently Obama thought he did, how tricky these situations are. Um, I think it's fair to say, and objectively, you can say Putin proved him wrong. He thought, I can use military force, limited basis, limited casualties overall, and I can get my way. I can get the policy outcomes I want. He's done that mostly by using air power. U.S. air power is much greater than Russian air power by any measure. Is it not possible for the U.S. and for Trump to think, I can do what Putin does. I am going to have American air power in Syria playing a decisive role for my goals. Putin can do it for his goals. I'm not going to interfere with him. He's not going to interfere with me. Or does that require much much what we have right now, such as a, a special forces base, which I think is what it is at, at Tanf? It's obviously complicated. It's complicated. I do, I, 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 yes, I do think, listen, Putin demonstrated contrary to everything Obama told us that, as you say, the limited exercise of uh, major military power uh, on the Syrian conflict could, in, in fact, achieve real political objectives, could impact political outcomes in a, in a way that Obama uh, led us to believe was, was impossible. Uh, so I do think there probably is significant room for a greater exercise of U.S. power, that there is, in fact, um, uh, a greater uh, margin for the U.S. to, to exercise its, its power inside of Syria in a way that would advance uh, some kind of settlement inside of Syria, uh, particularly with respect to Iran, with respect to Israeli and Jordanian interests. Um, that, uh, that would advance U.S. security, uh, certainly much more than the current posture, which is one of great uncertainty, great unpredictability, uh, that I think if, if the U.S. just pulled out would do enormous damage to us, and I think uh, there's no doubt would, um, would damage the credibility that Trump has, in fact, built up with a number of our allies in, in the region who do see Syria as something of a, of a, grand, uh, a ground zero in terms of the, the, the regional struggle for supremacy that uh, the U.S. camp is in with the Iranians. Putin in some ways avoided a quagmire by doing exactly what Obama was doing at the same time as he began to start the fight against ISIS. Now, Obama was, you know, 
late coming off the blocks to get into that race. Uh, there were too many Islamic State attacks in Europe and elsewhere. But slowly, we began to find a credible local partner willing to fight and die on the ground, mainly the Syrian Kurds, but some other groups as well. And what did Putin find? He didn't put Russian troops on the on the front lines. He found others in the area willing to fight and die. Some of that were Iranians, literally from Iran, from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, hundreds of whom have died. And to some extent, there has been a, a quagmire for Iran. If we look you know, at its domestic situation, it has mass demonstrations where people are chanting, you know, stop wasting money on Assad, stop wasting money on Hamas, spend it at home here on us because we're suffering, and they are. The economy is a wreck because of mismanagement. Um, but then Iran also managed to outsource it in a way the same way the U.S. did against ISIS, right? They're bringing in Afghans, to around 2,000 of whom has died, Pakistanis, probably several hundred. We don't know how many Iraqi Shiites really have died. They brought in Hezbollah, and of course, it's been a, something of a quagmire for Hezbollah. It has a small population base, and it's probably also lost around 2,000. So, you know, altogether, actually, the number of fighters who've sacrificed their lives to keep Assad in power is at least as much, uh, and, and I'm talking about non-Syrians, at least as many as Americans lost their lives in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's not as if there's a way to exercise this military power without someone giving their lives. But we've learned that the great powers at a distance, if they can use their air power and then have good local partners, can do this. And it's, you know, just as I said, the irony is that Obama said it was impossible even as he was beginning to do the very same thing. I want to briefly, because we don't have a lot of time, but I want to briefly bring in Turkey because I think we, it's, it's part of the equation. It is a NATO ally, in quotes, because it's also close to Russia. It's also been very friendly to the, to the Iranians. It obviously has interests in Syria. What do you see as Turkey's role at this moment? Well, currently, uh, as of the last month, um, the U.S. and Turkey have uh, reached some kind of tactical arrangement with regard to this uh, Syrian town of Manbij. Uh, the Sir uh, Turks have been um, really at wit's end about the U.S. Uh, uh, cooperation with this Kurdish group that they uh, uh, believe, quite rightly, is affiliated with the, uh, the, the Kurd uh, Kurdish PKK inside of Turkey that's been waging a terrorist, socialist mm -hmm. uh, group that has been waging a civil war inside of Turkey for most of the last three decades. Thousands of Turks have been lost in that civil war. So the Turks have been greatly concerned about this U.S. partnership that David has talked about with the Kurds inside of Syria that's been so successful against ISIS. Um, and the Turks have gravitated increasingly in Syria towards uh, American adversaries in Russia and, and Iran. And that's been a problem. Uh, again, in the last month, the U.S. and Turks have worked in agreement in this town of Manbij on the Turkish border, calling for the Kurdish group uh, to remove itself from Manbij and allow parties that are more friendly to Turkey to begin to patrol and take over security in, in Manbij. The Turks clearly would like that expanded to the rest of the uh, 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 Kurdish uh, zone inside of Syria that, that uh, we've liberated. Uh, whether that's possible uh, remains to be seen. Um, there was a thought that before the Turkish elections uh, that happened at the end of June uh, that uh, 
Turkish nationalism was was such a, a potent electoral issue for President Erdogan in Turkey uh, that there wasn't any deal possible with the United States over over uh, Syria. Uh, I think there's still some hope that maybe now with the elections behind us, with Erdogan secure in his position in, in Turkey, that we might be able to recreate some kind of minimal basis of, of strategic cooperation between the United States and Turkey. But I'm not, not holding my breath for that possibility. And President Erdogan, he's okay at this point with uh, Bashar Assad staying in power in Syria. He doesn't intend to challenge that anymore. He'll figure out a way to, to get along with him. I think that's lost. That's not the way that the, the Turks continue to talk a very tough uh, anti-Assad line, but the, the thought of them being able to do anything against Assad in Damascus over the head of the Russians, I think, is the chances of that are zero. The Turks are now looking to carve out their own zone of influence in that area in northern Syria along the Turkish border. A couple of questions I want to make sure we cover before we end. One is we keep talking about Assad staying in power, Assad essentially winning. Nobody's going to drive him out. One question I have is to what extent is he, in fact, in control of his own country? To what extent is he a puppet of Iran or a puppet of Russia? Or is he playing them off each other so cleverly that he does have control of his own country? Is he still the dictator or is the country compromised by foreign powers? I think it's compromised to a, a substantial extent. And, you know, as the thing usually goes, it's if you have the guns and you have the men holding the guns, you can exert power. Uh, Assad's army crumbled fairly early on in this war, and he's been reliant on Iranian-provided manpower to wage it, um, both in terms of even of organizing sort of irregular Syrian forces that are sort of part Syrian and part Iranian or Iranian-inspired. But then really the, the offensive striking forces that Assad has needed to reclaim claim most of the key areas in the country in the West, as well as further to the East, those are the Iranian Revolutionary Guards themselves, the Shiite militias from across the region that Iran has brought in, as well as the Hezbollah forces, who of course themselves are uh, you know, originally a product of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So if you don't actually have real control of the manpower, it's going to be very difficult. I think it's also questionable whether Assad even has control of the money. Uh, he is dependent on Iranian oil. Very interesting information coming out recently about how the route of a, a, a single tanker, the same ship each time making five trips from Iran to Syria illicitly to provide oil. Um, there has been Iranian lines of credit. Um, we don't know exactly what Russia is providing. It's certainly providing uh, there's grain exports from Russia to Syria, but likely possibly that we don't know about lines of credit at those banks. So you know, you're right, there is the possibility that an Assad can play the two off of each other, but I don't think he has all that much room to do that. Plus, internally, he's outsourced more and more to sort of independent militia types organizations and sort of oligarch cronies who control more and more that it's sort of it's a checkpoint world where everyone has their little slice of terrain and charges you tolls and extorts bribes. So it's it's a very broken country in every respect. So my last question is this. We're, at some point, Assad has to think about rebuilding places that have been devastated, at least in the parts of the country that he controls. Um, I've seen estimates of up to $250 billion to put together these cities that are essentially been reduced to rubble where there's no electricity or no water. And who is going to pay for the, to do that? Will the U.S. refuse? Will the U.S. be willing to give money to international organizations to do it and say, what can we do? It's a humanitarian um, cause. We can't, we can't stop. We can't stop doing that. 
Will the U.S. and others say, let Iran and Russia do it if they want to? And if not, will it willing to let Syrians starve? How does this country get rebuilt or does it? I'm not sure it does. The, the position for the record of the U.S. is we're not going to give any money for the reconstruction of areas controlled by Assad. And uh, Europe has pretty much joined us in that. Now, obviously, we don't know how much that position will hold, and it hasn't been personally articulated by the president. But, but the key point is that it could sound uh, sort of callous, but we look at what Assad does with the aid that has come in through the UN and others. Is He, he uses it as, as a means to entrench his control and interests. It's about you know, funneling the aid through his cronies and their businesses. It's about depriving those who don't support him personally of humanitarian relief and even charging them exaggerated prices or diverting the aid to to his own military forces. So there's no reason to believe that reconstruction aid for Assad-controlled territories will do anything to benefit anything but the reconstruction of the Assad regime. Whether foreign companies can do it, uh, the Russians might want to have some role. To some degree, there's been hope that in, in a more peaceful setting, Russian or Iranian companies could benefit, whether from a, a telecoms license or uh, doing things like having access to phosphates. Uh, but the U.S. could also deter some of that with sanctions. Uh, you know, we already have sanctions in place, and we'd have to actually enforce them. But those who provide substantial materials to support to the regime uh, are subject to sanctions. And there may be Chinese companies who have a lot more to gain in the U.S. market than they do from participating in the rebuilding of Syria. Russian companies may not care as much, especially if they've already been cut off from the American market. But we have leverage here. Last concern, I guess, and this is tied into this, is you have tens of thousands of children who for the past seven years have not been getting an education at all. They may not even be literate at this point. They've been living in tents. Um, we have to wonder what happens to them. Are they easily recruitable into something like the Islamic State or al-Qaeda because they have nowhere else to go and they're angry and um, they will fight against us and others in wars of the future? Yeah, I think that's a real question and a real should be a real concern that we, in fact, have lost nearly an entire generation of uh, Syrian, primarily Sunni children um, that not only have been displaced from their homes, haven't been going to school, but almost certainly have seen uh, loved ones suffer, killed, uh, seen their houses and homes destroyed. Uh, so I think there's a, a real danger about what happens to these people, how prone are they to being recruited for, uh, for a new jihadist cause in Syria or, or elsewhere, uh, and whether, in fact, uh, everything that's happened over the last uh, seven awful, bloody years uh, that we are simply planting the seeds uh, for, uh, for ISIS 2.0, 3.0, for the next jihad uh, that will again require America uh, to come back, uh, American forces to, to return to this part of the world to, uh, to try and protect ourselves from what happens there. It's a complex situation. Um, it's a distressing situation. There are no simple solutions to this. I hope for our listeners we've at least brought a little more clarity and we'll want to come back to you again to talk about this uh, as, as events develop in the future. So thanks for being with us. Uh, David and John, and thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May. 
and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.